Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, it's noteworthy to at least address with our audience, and even though this is outside the bounds of the military, we sit here as we get set to release this episode a day or two past the passing of Kobe Bryant as he was tragically killed in a helicopter accident along with his daughter and seven other people. And I've seen so many tributes over the last 24, 48 hours about Kobe and his life and reminders that, hey, you know, anything can be taken from us at any point in time and nothing in life is guaranteed. And I only say that to our audience because much of our audience who has put on a uniform has been faced with their own mortality before. We've been faced with it almost on a daily routine basis while in combat. And it's not something a lot of people take the time to think about uh, their own mortality. And so... When we tell these stories, we're often reminded that, hey, things can change in an instant. And I think that that is something that is a consistent theme on the hazard ground. But for civilians, they only come in contact with it every now and then. And here is the part that's hard for people to understand is that for us in combat, we understand loss. We understand that things go wrong and we're mentally prepared for it or as best as we can be mentally prepared for the loss of people that we care about, the people that we love, people we train with, etc. In the civilian world, the losses that they experience, like the death of Kobe Bryant, are from negligible accidents. Like, and that's the part that's so hard for people to grasp. You know, it's it's not the same as somebody being killed in cold blood, or it's not the same as a disease taking life away, or somebody overdosing, or things like that. And I'm not comparing the loss, saying one is worse than the other. That, that's not it at all. This was an accident that there really is no explanation why. And despite whatever comes out from the flight recorder and all that other stuff, case in point, this was a routine trip for them, and there was no real danger involved in it. And so that's where mortality begins to become a real issue for people because it's hard to understand that something so innocent, like a simple accident, could cause so much grief and devastation. And so I say all this, again, just to remind our listeners that, you know, mortality is something we talk about a lot here on the podcast, and many people have been faced with it and come close to it and uh, experienced it in many different sides, ways, shapes, or forms. So with that in mind, we just remind you to take care of your loved ones, hug somebody you love, tell them the words that you love them, and make sure that they know Because as we've said many times before, as trite as it may sound, nothing is guaranteed for tomorrow. With that, not exactly sure how to transition into our normal scheduled programming, but an episode coming up talking about one of the most important military engagements in military history in the post-Vietnam era for the United States, a 30-year anniversary on the Battle of Operation Just Cause. Really excited for you guys to hear this week's episode. Just a couple quick reminders again. 
Let's get those YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter followers up. We really want to grow the social media presence so we can connect with more of you all. Don't forget our promotion with Amazon. Go to the website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner. Do all your normal Amazon spending. As long as you go through our website, hazardground.com first, we will get a percentage of what you spend, and then we'll donate it back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So with that all out of the way, we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Army sergeant who was part of the historic 75th Ranger Regiment, whose lone deployment was to Panama during Operation Just Cause, where he was wounded in one of the most interesting close-quarters combat fights in all of Ranger Regiment history. He is David Reeves joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. David, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, again... We have told the story of Operation Just Cause in in several different ways. A lot of people who we've spoken to about it, it was sort of one stop on the way along many other stops towards bigger events in their career, whether it be, you know, Mogadishu or onto the Gulf War and eventually into Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Some people have spanned it all. Unfortunately for you, this was your only deployment um, as you were wounded during it. We'll get to that more. But how would you get your start in the military? Why would you get in? Well, I grew up uh, grew up in North Georgia, and uh, the first I really thought about the military was I was in high school when uh, Operation Eagle Claw happened, okay. the, uh, the Iranian host- hostage uh, rescue attempt, and uh, it didn't really spark an interest in me to join, but it I became aware that there were people out there like that who had a a completely different uh, philosophy on life than I did. It, and I just couldn't imagine guys who would even attempt to do something like that mission. Um, later on, I was early in college when uh, Grenada happened, Urgent Fury. And uh, that's the first time I heard the word Ranger. And pretty much right then and there, I made up my mind that, that that's what I was going to do and uh or at least try to do and if they ever had another mission my goal was to to be on it and um so i went down to the recruiter and he um gave me a little pamphlet and in reading that there was a page in there about uh ss and, and rangers and that was my introduction to some little quotes from the ranger creed and part of what they had written in there was surrender is not a ranger word. And I couldn't justify quitting college to join a group or attempt to join a group whose ethos or mantra was never quit. So I, I finished up college and enlisted on the delayed entry program and uh, on a 11 x-ray unassigned ranger contract. And that's what that's what led me led me to uh, third range battalion. What'd your parents say? Because obviously, I mean, you know, again, college set you on a different path at that point in time. Not a lot of people go to college first. Back then, uh, when people were signing up, it's because they couldn't go to college, right? Like guys in your era um, who signed up, obviously pre nine eleven and even pre Gulf War, uh, are, are guys who you know kind of uh, uh, were were looking for a different path in life, right? A lot were, and I was surprised at the number. We had several college graduates in my platoon, but uh, but by and large, you are correct. And 
after I went in like three years after, uh, after Grenada. So, uh, four years after Grenada. So, uh, they had, they had seen my desire for it stay and not not leave during that time. And so they were, they were fine with that. They would not have been happy if I would have quit school and went into the military in say November of 83, just as a reaction to Grenada. I don't think they would have approved of that, but they were, they were happy with the way it happened. Okay. So you get the basic training. Uh, Is it what you thought it was going to be? Was it physically challenging for you? Basic was basic was basic. And, um, is is the best way I know to say it. I had spent uh, obviously a couple of years knowing what I wanted to do and preparing for it. I, I'm a long ways from the the fastest, the smartest, or the strongest, but I was I was a little disappointed and thought I might have made a mistake. The army was coming in as a civilian. The army was not what I thought it was. What'd you think it was? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to explain. I I thought I was going to be some high speed guy out snooping and pooping and, and doing all this fancy stuff right off the bat, I guess would be the best way to say it. And, uh, and you come in and you start at the beginning and, and you start learning and you, and you get put in your place and you learn and go from there. And, uh, so I'm, I'm completely fine with it now, but it was a little bit of an eye opener to, to, uh, to me when I began. That said, did you feel like you had made a bad decision? Like maybe Ranger school was going to be too much for you? I, you know, you never know about what Ranger school is going to be like or, or, or rip or battalion or, and I was excited that, that I had the opportunity to try for it and, and I knew I was going to give it my best and, and I could sleep with myself and live, live with that as long as I had given it, given it my best shot. And so it, I knew I was going to be prepared for it and, and we take it from there, how it, how it, how it went. How quickly do you get to Ranger school after basic and, and, uh, AIT? The pipeline works went um, went through basic, then went to uh, the airborne school at Benning, and after that was uh, three weeks of what was then called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program. Mm-hmm. And from there, I went on to uh, to the battalion, and I was maybe four months before I got my slot. I, uh, my slot came as a little bit of surprise. We were actually uh, doing a three-week training deployment down in Panama. And I had no idea where I was on the what we called the merit list. But the platoon leader came up to me as we were on the on the birds heading back to uh, Benning from Panama and said, asked me if I could pass a PT test. And, of course, being a young PFC, there's, there's only one answer to that, and that's, yeah, I can, sir. And, uh, he said, well, good, you're going to pre-ranger as soon as we land. And that was my, uh, that was my preparation for pre-ranger and ranger school right there. And uh, 
So uh, my, I was in a in sixty team, and my gunner brought. I went straight to pre range for Derek from landing, and my gunner brought brought all my gear over to me the next morning, and, and I clashed up with him. Okay, so as you start this whole process, what are your thoughts and feelings? Oh, I'm thinking I'm. I'm thinking I'm where I want to be. I'm doing what I want to do. I, um, I, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to, I'm definitely not going to quit. Uh, I, I think I can handle it and I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of Ranger, Ranger school stories out there and it's a, uh, it's a kick in the teeth and, um, somehow or another at, at the end of it, they, uh, they decided I was worthy to uh, to get a ranger tab, but uh, it was it was a lot of work. There was some there was some good luck. There was some um, you know some things. You're going to have your bad days, and I certainly had mine. And uh, did my best to to help others when they were uh, when they were having theirs, and and they would pull alongside me and help me on help me on my bad days. And uh, and we made it through, and uh, 58 days later, at that time, I was standing out on the parade field getting a getting a ranger tab pinned on me, which uh, in the battalion that that moved me up from a PFC to a to a specialist E4, and uh, I came out, and, and then I was an M60 guy, and, and that's how it. That's how Ranger School went, and mm-hmm. um, you know it, it was a big step for me. I was, I was, I was happy. I felt like I'd accomplished a major goal in in my life at that time, and it was it was difficult, and I, I was proud of myself. Best and worst part of Ranger School for you personally? Oh man, worst part of Ranger School. Best part is uh, best part is probably realizing that I was what we call tabbed out. And that is you've completed all the requirements and now you I'm just not gonna mess up bad enough to get kicked out here in these last few days. Worst part uh I was a what we called a droner. I would uh it was it was hard for me to stay awake that long. Uh I would. Uh, I definitely learned how to walk while I was while I was sound asleep. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I remember one day um, we had a desert phase then, and it was in Dugway, Utah, and it was our last phase. And I was walking point on a platoon size movement, and it was in mid to late November and snowing really hard. And being from Georgia, I never had really seen snow like that. And um, I just w- pretty much just went to sleep while I was walking, being hypnotized by that snow. And I looked up and I see a guy in front of me, and I I think it's a another patrol that must have walked up on the on the back of. So I I jog up there and ask him who he is, and he's the uh, rear security or the last man in the patrol that I was walking point for. <laughs> <laughs> Every single one of those guys had walked, walked right past me. And I was still walking. I was just, just 
sound asleep and oblivious to to where I was going. And that, that was my first time ever in a desert environment and wide open spaces like that and uh, and snow and it was so that was that was that was probably one of my one of my worst ones. Some other guys who were there probably could think of some worse than I did, but that was that one sticks out. That's a great story. All right, so you finished Ranger School uh, and you're moving on. What year month is this when you graduate? I graduated Ranger School in November of 1988. Okay. And you're going right to the 75th Ranger Regiment, right? Right. Oh, I had already been there. I'd, okay. I'd, I'd, I'd come there uh, right after RIP. I'd, I'd been in the I'd been in uh, in the regiment for four or five months, probably at this time. All right, so and, uh, it's a little bit of time before you have to go to Panama. What is anything going on in the lead up before you start hearing the words Panama? We started hearing the words Panama right away. Oh, really? And, and um, we were hearing about Panama in, in 88, and we were actually practicing some contingencies for it throughout 88. Um, in in 89 we went to uh we went to puerto rico then we in the summer we made our second trip to panama and working working in uh out of fort sherman in the in the jungle operations training center there and um came back from that i went to uh, a school that was then called pldc which is the um, the school you go to uh, right before you get get sergeant stripes pinned That's on you. That's the it went from PLDC to um, I think it was called Warrior or something like Warrior School or they changed the name of it so many times. But I just remember when I was a lieutenant, PLDC was everything to the enlisted world, and you would never see sergeant stripes until you completed PLDC. Then they started giving out sergeant stripes left and right to everybody before PLDC. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's, and I was, I was in the regiment. I was one of the early, one of the early guys that, that had to go to PLDC. And, uh, so, uh, so I went to that, uh, I think about that time frame is they had a coup attempt in Panama and, uh, some of Noriega's guys tried to, tried to take over and, um, our training seemed to change about that time. We, uh, they came over, there were five or six of us from, uh, from third range battalion in my PLDC class. They came and got us and we graduated like two days early and we went to England and in England of all places, we, uh, we practice airfield seizures for, uh, for about three weeks straight and um came back did some um did some more uh more training and then we went into a, another in late november early december we went into a, another uh three week training period that culminated with a regimental mission down in florida that to my knowledge, there never had been a regimental mission mission before. It was it was very unusual to uh, 
to be working with our with our sister ranger battalions or alongside of them if not directly when we um probably while we were in the air flying back from that florida mission noriega decides to declare war on us so uh and the other interesting thing about the the florida mission was all the objectives had the exact same names as they had in england and all our tasks were practically exactly the same as what we had just done in england so you're, you're starting to think even though nobody's saying anything that we're training for something fairly specific here and uh but none of that was was coming down to my level but uh you just you had the sense of it or i had the sense of it then um so we're back from there and i remember it was a sunday afternoon and i was i lived on base and was was in um in the little nco section of the barracks that we had and there was my roommate and we're watching uh football on tv and the cq runner comes in and and says hey battalion's on alert and we're looking at each other like yeah right we're on alert it's uh it's a week before christmas what are you know they're not they're not going to mess with us right now so um we keep watching the game and after uh after a few minutes we decide we'll go look outside and see and sure enough we are on alert and it was we didn't get the word that it was panama right then and there were a couple of other training type contingencies that it could have been but you you had the general feel that that this was it and um and and we were going so uh we just went into our sequence then um a couple hours into into that they uh gave us the word that we were going to go back and redo the florida mission so we got that word all the ncos were in the platoon cp and the platoon leader told us that and so we're looking around at each other like okay we're going to go do that and somebody pipes up and says well what's our packing list and lieutenant gibbon says take anything you might need and i don't know if he knew then or not but but that was all that that was all that we needed to know that that we were going so uh next thing we did was we finished our packing told us to get some rest and we'd be moving over to savannah to uh, link up with first ranger battalion and second ranger battalion would be flying in from fort lewis to link up with alpha and bravo companies of of third battalion so a couple hours later we get the word the buses are there and we go out and when we when we went on the training mission we bused to savannah also but we went in in chartered buses and there were like four of the green army school buses sitting out there for us on this night 
and we, we're just like, well, whatever we're doing, they there wasn't any notice or planning involved in this. So we cram on those buses and through the middle of the night, we arrive probably right at daylight. We arrive in Savannah and they just told us at the building and the location we were at, they told us just go inside and uh, don't come outside. They were trying not to get any satellite signature for anybody who might be watching us. And not long after that, we get the official word that it is Panama and it is the mission that we've been practicing. At any point in time when you hear that, does it make you nervous? Does it make you scared? It does make you nervous. And, and you go from a, or, or me at least, it, you go from the peacetime army and, um, there's always that contingency and we always trained for it, but you never know. It's, it's like a pipe dream or something that may happen and may not. So you're, you're nervous and you're scared. Is it real? And, and how am I going to react to it? Am I going to be able to do my job is the, is the main fear that I had. And then the fear of the unknown that you people normally have when you're, when you're doing something for the first time. So not a, not a terrifying fear, but, but a common fear of soldiers of particularly possibly going to combat for the first time is, is what's it going to be like and how am I going to perform? Right. So when do you actually get to Panama? When do you go wheels up and, and, and head over? We left probably about four o'clock in the afternoon on uh, the nineteenth and of December nineteen eighty nine. Of December, yes, nineteen eighty nine. Okay. May have been a little later than that. Our uh, we jumped at zero one on twenty December. Okay, and uh, so we're our part of the mission was at Torrijos de Cumaná International Airport. There's a military area to it and a civilian area to it. And Charlie Company 3rd Battalion mission was to secure the civilian area of that airport. And uh, so it's a uh, – and, and the reason zero one was chosen was that was a time the airport was supposed to be deserted. They didn't have any any incoming flights scheduled at that time. Of course uh, – the way things work that it didn't work out that way. And it was a up and running operational airport with, with a lot of passengers inside there due to some late landings, which is what, um, what got us going. So we, we jump out and uh, it's a, you know, the airport's all lit up. There's, all the, the runway lights are on, the lights in the building are on, the uh, there's normal airport vehicles moving around. There's can see a little little bit of tracer fire going both up and down from uh, some of aircraft we had 
providing cover and fire, we were not in a in the same situation that that the guys over at Rio Hato were in, meaning that once once on the ground, we were able to link up without having to fight to our assembly areas by and large, at least on the at least on the civilian airport where I was. For those who don't know, um, Operation Just Cause lasted a little over a month, less about five weeks. So you get there, you kick off on 20 December and it goes through the end of January. We're coming up on the uh, 30 year anniversary of uh, the ending of Operation Just Cause. Um, before your particular engagement, how long are you there and kind of what's the day to day operation like? Oh, it's it, I'm not there very long at all. It's uh, it's it's right away. It's, uh, you know, with, with, within the hour is, is when my part of it happens and, and when I'm wounded, the, uh, so, you know, basically we jump out and we had heard on the way down, we had got a message. We got two messages. One, they know we're coming. And two, we got the message to expect civilians there and be weapons tight which uh to us weapons tight meant you had to be under a direct threat before you could uh, engage anyone so uh, we jump out and we land and, and right away they start taking hostages and they break out a couple of windows and in our assembly area, I jumped on, I landed on the stripe on the runway. That's how close to the, uh, to the terminal buildings we're landing. And, um, our assembly area was at probably 200 meters away from the runway out where a taxiway intersects it. So they take hostages, break out some windows and they get some English speakers and they're women and they're just screaming bloody murder for us to not come in there or they're going to kill them. And then, um, they take a baby from one of them. And one lady is just going berserk that they've got my baby and they're going to, they're going to kill my baby. So we're laying out in the assembly area, listening to this and it's, it's getting real pretty fast because, we know exactly where we're going is is right inside that terminal building was was my squad's mission and so um and at this point i'm a i'm a fire team leader and we're working as a we're a five man squad so we've got two two man clearing teams and squad leader sergeant thorland who's who's directing us and then he'll backfill for any any casualties we take. So we're, uh, we're pretty light and we've got a, we've got a pretty big area to, to clear the, uh, so we're assembled. We watch, um, once we get enough accountability, second squad moves out and, and clears a, a outbuilding, which was a, which was a fire station. And from there they provide support for us or overwatch for us Mm -hmm. and we move out in 
without a doubt, the biggest, widest wedge I've ever seen is we cross a, about 200 meters of just open tarmac heading right into them. We get there, we, uh, we drop our rucks, first squad moves around the building to, to their objective, and we move inside on the, on the downstairs level, and we've got a long hallway with masonry walls and metal doors and all the doors were locked we didn't have anything with us that was capable of of breaching those doors so we go back outside and there's a window that's probably about four and a half feet off the ground and it's got mini blinds on it and the lights are on inside and sergeant thorland and i break out the, the glass on that and he says he's going to give me a boost and I'm a pretty big guy. I'm about, I'm six, four at that time. I was probably about 200, 205 pounds and mm-hmm. Thorland's probably five ten and maybe two thirty. just, uh, you know, incredible athlete. And so his boost winds up me go flying head first through the mini blinds. Thank goodness. No one was in there. And from there we're able to, gain access to all the other all the other rooms downstairs and we clear those and we find a stairwell that's got a glass door to it and we move begin to move upstairs to uh, to clear that portion of it and this is a uh, boarding gate area it's a it's a big round room maybe I don't know, 120 feet by 120 feet with chairs. It's got chairs in it for seating. It's got the got the agent's desk for the flights. It's got a, a couple of doors leading off of it. And it's got those uh, walkways that you walk down to uh, before you board an aircraft. So we get up the stairs and Eubanks and Kelly clear the clear the first room and then it's uh farber and i's turn and farber uh farber goes in first it's a little um three by three room this is a bathroom by the way and we hit that door i flow past him through the next door and i'm going hard right and as soon as I enter, there's a guy standing 180 degrees to my left. And that's when everything just went into slow motion for me. All right. So and, just let, let me set this up again for, for everybody listening so we can get the visual. You're going through the bathroom door and making a hard right. When you say 180 degrees, he's directly behind you to your left. So if you had made a left, you would have been facing him, correct? I, I left would have been the correct move for me to make. Yes, sir. Okay. So you ba- essentially turned your back to him. Yes. Okay. And I'm probably not. A, I'm not 180 degrees, but I'm a good 135, 150 degrees. I'm I'm turning hard. And um, so I start to turn, and I hear our. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't have time. And 
then the next thought I have is that um, this is going to be really messy. And I was carrying a 203. And being the being an optimist, I was just assuming I was going to be able to to make that turn fast and uh, get a round off, and it was it was going to be messy when it hit him. Well, uh, the uh, he lets loose with a burst, and time had slowed down so much that I could see. You know, an automatic rifle fire, it looks like just one big flame. Well, to me, it was just boom, 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 like individual shots. And we're probably, I might be maybe two feet away from him. And it hits me and just just knocks me down as if, if you would have hit me with a baseball bat across the across the chest Mm -hmm. so so not not real sharp pain but but you're down or i'm down and while i'm falling i knew i was dead there was no no question in my mind no thought about anything else so I, i thought well mom i'm sorry about that because i knew that this was going to really hurt her. I hit the ground and I'm, I'm laying there. I assume dead and I'm a Christian. And my, my next thought was how long is it going to take to get to heaven? And what's it going to be like? And I've got no perception of time at all, but I hear voices and I can't understand what they're saying. And my first thought is I should be able to understand voices in heaven. (laughs) And, and that's when I realized I was alive and it was the, um, two enemy soldiers were, were talking to each other and that's what I was hearing. So I, um, I have a, uh, a great fear of being executed then is the, is the best way I know how to say it. There's still really no, no thought of I'm going to survive this, but at least I can choose how I go. Is there any thought, Dave, like you're you're basically three, not not even three hours into the operation. Like, (laughs) right. I mean, are, are you sitting here going, thinking anything like, I mean, how does this happen to me? Like, how did I end up here? We haven't even gotten started yet, and I'm already wounded and bleeding. Later, later, and I've spent a lot of years uh, with a with a lot of guilt and a lot of embarrassment about that. But but at that time, no. Uh, when when I heard them screaming out those windows, it was it was on, and that was uh, that was a life changing moment. I guess you could say for, for me, particularly as far as, at least as far as this engagement goes. But, uh, but at, at that point I was, I was worried about, worried about other things and, and had not, hadn't got there yet. But that depth, that thought of, 
of how did this happen so fast and uh definitely came later and and still uh still exists to this day and uh so i'm looking around and saying what am i going to do as soon as they realize i'm alive they're gonna they're gonna shoot me and uh so i i decided to crack one eye open and look at my situation and and i can see my rifles laying on the floor about two or three feet away from me and i can see a, a pool of blood that's growing but growing slowly and so i i know that i'm not going to bleed out in the next minute or so which is about what i as much time as i think i've got so i, I start to reach for my rifle it won't my arm won't work so i can't get it and my pockets the old uh, BDU cargo pockets are just crammed full of grenades. So I say, well, I'm going to get a grenade. And my plan was to pull the pin on the grenade and sit there with it. And when, if it came a time I could use it, I would use it. If it didn't have a time to use it, at least I could fight back and hopefully, hopefully take them with me. The uh, what I failed to um, remember is when you've only got one arm that works, it's it's mighty difficult to mm-hmm. open pockets to uh, cargo pants, and it's it sure is difficult to um, stealthily pull a pin on a grenade. So while I'm fiddling around with that the room just explodes again. And uh, Kelly and Eubank had come in and they're laying down a base of fire trying to see where I am and um, if I'm alive and, and see how to evacuate me. So next thing I know, Kelly's low crawling to me and I'm watching him out of the corner of my eye and his K-pot just goes flying off his head. And being a being a young NCO, I, I just look at him and say, man, put your K-pot back on. You're going to get hurt in here. And I don't think he even knew it got shot off at, at that point. And he drags me out. And um, they prop me up and... Um, and begin to uh, begin to work on me, and then we begin to devise some plans for for them to go back in and and clear the room. So uh, Thorland's guiding everything. Farber's pulling first aid on me. Kelly and Eubank approach the room again. By now, all this weapons tight um, business is done with, and we're. Uh, we're we're able to use whatever force that that we deem necessary so they throw a grenade in come back uh, and prepare to open the door well the door won't open the second time due to the due to the blast of the of the first grenade 
Kelly's got a cooked off grenade in his hand. So, um, being a, um, having good sense, we hear frag in and he tosses the grenade over into the seating area. Farber dives on top of me to, to shield me from anything and the grenade goes off and, and none of us are, none of us are hurt from that. By now, all of us are, uh, pretty mad and uh these guys are these guys need to go so they they go in with another grenade and i was not i'm outside the room um i'm not inside when this is when this is happening but so i'll tell a little bit of their part of the story as i know it and we've definitely all kept in touch over the years and feel like I know it as good as anybody, but I, I certainly don't want to discredit them or, or add to it or take away from it. But, but they, uh, they go in again and by now this is a bathroom. So all the, all the sinks and all the toilets have, have just exploded. Um, there's water shooting everywhere from them. Uh, the uh, there's several inches of water on the floor. My blood's on all over the floor. The porcelain's all over the floor. The and one of these guys sticks his head out a little bit too far, and Eubank shoots him. Well, Kelly goes over to clear him. And as he does, he slips. And and as he slips, he's doing like a baseball slide, and the guy goes out the window. They had a floor-to-ceiling windows there. And we've got an M60 team positioned just so happens right below that window. And guy hits the ground, starts to reach into his uh, pistol belt to pull a pistol, and at that point, the assistant gunner on the M60 team kills him. While this is going on, the other guy jumps out and starts going hand-to-hand with Eubank. And they're in a, they're in, you know, it's a life-and-death battle. Eubank um, is is fighting him off as as best they can. Kelly sees it, comes over and gets himself into a position to where he can shoot and and kill the guy, and that eliminates the threat. And the room is uh, the room's now secure. So our, you know a that's a few words for a for a heck of a fight and a and a heck of a job that, that those guys did and now the attention turns to um to me and and my first aid and eventually there is deemed secure enough and I'm 
I'm carried downstairs to a uh, to a collection point, casualty collection point, and um, wait for uh, wait for a medevac to uh, to come in and get me, and then I'm then I'm flown to Howard Air Force Base, where they've got uh, like a I would call it a mass unit. I don't know the proper name, but they've got tent hospitals set up out by the out by the runway and go in there and they do one surgery on me there and other than that it's just trying to get everybody stable and then they give us all uh chest tubes which uh i don't recommend getting chest tubes but uh and then we're i'm put on a C-141 and flown to Texas and began a, began a several months long recuperation in the hospital there. And the guys, the guys in my squad, after they get me down to the casualty collection point, they continue on and complete their mission of that night. And then later the next morning, Charlie Company, Third Ranger Battalion, is is called out and they go and clear La Comandancia in in downtown Panama City, which is in the area of Modelo Prison and uh, where Kurt Muse was, though not the same building, just close by. And they clear that. Our platoon takes several more wounded in in that part of the part of the operation and then the guys in Texas we were at Wilson Hall and Lackland Air Force Base. And so they were they put us all in the same room in the hospital, which was which was pretty neat. So we got to, got to get together, get better together the rest of the the rest of the unit continued on and and completed whatever missions they were given as uh for the duration until it was time to time to come back to fort benning georgia that was my participation in it from then it was just just focus on getting better you know you're you know i know i'm hurt bad and uh i'm assuming that um I'm assuming that my military career is over and the the doctors I'm completely happy with. They, they worked, worked hard and with the technology available, they did, uh, I'm as functional as, as I could possibly expect to be, particularly from, from taking a, a burst like that at, at that range. And, um, so it worked on getting better, got as, got as good as it was going to get. The, um, I asked a doctor what I could expect, and he said that I was on a, on a permanent no push-ups profile, no, um, no jumping profile, and my options in the army were 
severely limited. So when they offered me a medical board, I I accepted that. And and it did continue to get better. Probably that took about a year and probably a year from the injury. I could do one push up. Maybe six or seven years after the injury, I could do 10 push ups. And and now I can do now I can do as many push ups as I as I decide to train to do. And so so I'm happy. And the uh, the damage to me was one round through the through the left side right under my armpit that came out the center of my back. My rifle was to my front and it took seven rounds and then it hit my collarbone on my on my right side and uh, blew out about a three inch chunk of collarbone and another small bone called the acromion bone. So uh and that's what what wound up doing the damage damage to the joint. So proud to have been there, but it was a it was a short trip, like you said, and uh, the uh but it was it was definitely an interesting one for me. Any regrets about your time in service? No, no. The, the the only regret is the only regret is getting hurt. That's that's the only regret. It and I don't want you know, obviously when you when you go through an intense situation, you you relive it many many times, and you and you what if it and if I'd have done this and if I'd have done that, how could it how could it have turned out different and. I regret some of what guys in my squad had to go through to, to get me out and, and clear that room. And, and I regret that I was not able to, to finish my enlistment and, and the choice of whether I was going to stay and either in the, either in the Ranger Regiment or do other things was, was not an option. And that's, that's the only regret. But, uh, the time I was there, I was doing exactly, exactly what I wanted to do. And, and I wouldn't have it, wouldn't have it any other way. And, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have it any other way than me being first through that door. Right. Is there any part of you that, that, when you see how the rest of history unfolds again with Mogadishu and desert storm and everything else, are you upset that you weren't there for any of that? Yes, it's, it's, I, I'm obvious. I've obviously demonstrated I'm not the world's greatest warrior, but I still that warrior blood, runs through my veins and to see 
the the men and women that came behind me and the history they've made and the 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 battles that they've been involved in and the and the it yes i i regret having to watch that on tv or just to just to hear stories from my from my buddies i i definitely regret that because it's what this generation of soldiers has done is is completely remarkable in in my mind what little i know about it there's there's so much better and more advanced than than we were in in our day and they've 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 fought so hard and and brought so much pride to uh to me and to, to us as a nation and and i i definitely regret not being able to participate how do you reconcile all that now i mean is it just something that happened and you're done with it or does it still kind of haunt you even after all these years you know that's a that's a tricky one and and it it does haunt me after all these years and and you i try really hard not to let a few seconds all to the rest of your life. life. Yeah. I mean, because in reality, if you were going to make this a career, when you got in, I mean, you would have been part of the, the war on terror. You would have been in Afghanistan or Iraq at some point if you had done 20 years. Absolutely. I'd, I'd have been a, uh, a grizzled you know, veteran at that point in time. Yes. Yes, sir. I'd have been a, a platoon sergeant or a first sergeant or, or, or who knows, but, but would have, I would have, uh, I would have been involved in that. And, uh, I was in Charlie company. It was Bravo company that was in, uh, in Mogadishu. So don't know, um, don't know if I would have still been in Charlie company or, or hard to say that I would have been involved in that, but, uh, to, um, to not have the chance was, uh, is just not always easy to, uh, not always easy to reconcile and uh and you, i hate to i don't know that i could do anything any better i, I think my actions proved that i would have i would have maybe done something worse but but i'm very glad i was the first man through that door because if anybody was going to get hit let it be me to take a burst like that and live if I'd have been in any other position or anyone else in a different body shape or size or any different position would have been dead. Mm-hmm. The, um, and the, you feel the same thing is, you know, why can't I, and why do the, why do the soldiers today have to have to carry that burden and, and, I'm not able to help other than other than wave the flag and right. wave the flag and cheer them on. So, Do you still talk to formerly Special Shoe Banks and Private First Class Kelly? Oh yes, yes. I mean, did they go and, on to stay in the military and have long careers? Or no, no, they did not. Uh, Farber, Farber did. He retired, and um, Thorland. Um, got out during the drawdown in the mid nineties mm-hmm. in one of the Clinton drawdowns. Oh, those were the good old days. 
Yes, sir. That's that's right when you came in, I believe. Well, that's it? that's how I, I was basically not kicked off active duty, but they were looking for people. They were looking for officers to leave active duty. And a whole bunch of us had had applied for a program at that point in time to send us all to the guard. And it was literally three months before 9-11 is when I left active duty. Oh, wow. And um, the. uh so it's and fortunately, I say fortunately, I, I don't mean to speak for you, but you're able to continue serving, able to, uh, you know, able to deploy. Oh and, yeah, uh, I mean, listen, David, I, I, I don't know that I could have thought or picked for my career to work out better the way it did. It's not conventional. It's not the way everybody would have done it, but you know, I, I'm very, very lucky to have had the career that I've had. Um, I'm blessed to still be alive and all in one piece, but you know, to that end, there are many like you who, who don't have that, that great fortune, but still all things considered, um, I've been very lucky and fortunate throughout my career. And I don't know that there would, there would be much of it. I would change. I tell people I would have been less of a punk asshole as a Lieutenant, um, that <laughs> yes. I definitely would, would go back and change. But as far as the course that my career took, um, I don't know that I, I would have wanted or needed it to go any different. I, I, I've said, and I've realized this after 20 years, that the Army has, has a way, um, and the military has a way of always putting you where you're supposed to be. Um, and I, I have a lot of trust and faith in that, that uh, everyone's journey throughout the military is exactly what it was supposed to be for a given variety set of reasons. For you, it was because, as you stated, if you weren't the first person through that door, um, Eubanks or Kelly w- wouldn't be alive today. I mean, they might not, not have survived those those rounds. So um, I, I think that we can all look back and wish things had gone different or wonder what things would like if they had been different. But even in your case, David, I, I don't know that uh, your your service or your sacrifice is any less justified, warranted, or important just because the long and the short of your military career lasted less than three years. And I, and I appreciate that, and I, I also agree with that. A hundred percent. And, and going back to, um, if I'd have been completely healthy, who, who knows how long I would have lasted. And I'm, I'm not afraid to, to admit that even though I loved and was extremely proud to be in the Ranger Regiment, I was a long ways away from being God's gift to Rangers. I, I wasn't the, the fastest guy. I wasn't the strongest guy. I wasn't the smartest guy. I was, I grabbed hold of that rope and I held on for, for dear life and just did the best I, best I could with it and, and refused to quit. And somehow or another, they decided to, to continue to promote me and put me in different positions as, as my, uh, during that short career that I had, but, uh, whether I could have held up, it's a big assumption saying you're going to hold up physically in, of not just in a special operations unit in, in an infantry unit in, in any kind of, in any kind of unit. It's a, it's a, it's a hard, uh, physical job. And so, but I agree a hundred percent with you that it happened. It happened the way it did for a reason. I sleep good at night with that, but I do, uh, 
I do feel that I I missed getting to participate in all the events that have happened since. However, I can I'm okay with that. I can I can live with it. Well, to that end, David, I mean. Uh, if you're in that spot, then I'm glad. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, what happened to you, as you mentioned, a lot of people wouldn't have survived. So thankfully you did. And uh, the message and the story still serve uh, not only our listeners, but just everybody in general, that uh, your slice of the pie and your piece of, of your service um, isn't just, it, it isn't measured in how much or how long you do it. It's just measured in whatever your service time is that you made the most of it. And I think that to that end, you certainly uh, embodied that whole sort of spirit. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and was able to come full circle here uh, a couple of weeks ago when about a hundred of us went back to Panama. Oh, really? And, and that was really, that was really neat to, uh, to fly in on a commercial plane into that same airport and, walk down those same halls again and um you know i when i got off the plane got a a, a buddy who was on the plane with me and um we went straight straight to that bathroom and and that gate area and uh they've done a lot of remodeling but 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 the gate area is is still identifiable and uh the uh the old bathroom door doesn't open anymore, but it's it's still there and really neat to see that <clears throat> and to spend a few days with the people of Panama and some other just cause vets down there. And, you know, I'm so, I'm so jealous of that. I really like we've talked to people, Vietnam vets who have gone back to their spot in Vietnam. Uh, I, I remember remarking in a journal that I kept during my deployment that I, I, I hope to go back to Iraq one day. Now, I went back there five years later as in the deployment, but, you know, right. I, I, I hope to go back there one day uh, and walk around and, you know, shorts and a T-shirt and just be able to go back to certain spots that uh, forever will be linked in my memory um, for some sort of catharsis and closure on uh, everything that we went through. And I really hope that... Uh, uh, there is a, a time and place where that can happen down the road. <laughs> Obviously, with the world the way it is right now, it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, but uh, ho- hopefully it'll happen. But I, I certainly am jealous of, of people like you who got to do that. And I hope that, I hope that does happen. I hope that happens for you, too. And I hope the, I hope the people in those old battlegrounds are thriving. And, uh, and the result of the fruit of... I'm going to call it labor. I know that's a poor, poor word choice, but the fruit of that labor is, uh, is realized and, uh, and the country's a better, better place and, and the people are in a better position. And it was, it did me good to see that the growth that Panama has had and, and how well they are doing. Cause we were there in 88 and they were in bad shape was there in the summer of 89 and it was just a mess. And um, then in the winter of 89, it was for the invasion. It was obviously a a bad place, but December of December of 2019, it was, it was a nice place to be and um, to be mostly welcomed by the people. It was, uh, 
was nice also and to to walk those grounds and uh to maybe exercise some ghosts is there not a, there wasn't a boogeyman hiding in there waiting to to jump out and get me it was just uh it was just a just a room is is all it was like like so many others and that that was good that was good as well to uh to see that well, David, again, uh, an incredible story, and certainly thank you for sharing it with us after all these years. And uh, I know as the 30-year anniversary approaches for you, as we sit here in the middle of January recording this, as I mentioned earlier, there'll be some emotions and feelings and everything as you try to reflect back on the last 30 years. But just know that, again, um, even though it was a short amount of time you put on a uniform, um, there was an impact, uh, and you certainly impacted lives around you. So we thank you for that. Again, thank you for sharing your story, and thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Oh, thank you. Thanks for all you do. I appreciate it very much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, <laughs> rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre. And every day, we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, the gap between what you should save and what you can save has never felt bigger. The U.S. Bank mobile app can help by finding ways to help you reach your savings goals with personalized insights that fit your real life to make your financial goals feel within reach. Because even our tools are smart enough to put people first. U.S. Bank. We'll get there together. Equal housing lender, member FDIC.